Hello and a warm welcome to First Move. I'm Christina McFarlane, in for Julia Chatterley, just ahead on today's show. Ukraine strain. President Zelensky saying his country's counteroffensive against Russia is progressing more slowly than hoped. The very latest on the war in Ukraine just ahead. Plus, tracking travel, the post-pandemic urge to splurge on summer vacations continues. Demand holding up well, even with higher prices. We'll hear from the CEO of Bookings Holdings, which has just reported strong quarterly results. And currency kick. The Women's World Cup is being called the first ever cashless FIFA event. We'll speak to the marketing chief at Visor later in the show as players gear up for the quarterfinals action. And a bit of a charge on global markets this Wednesday as U.S. stocks set for a mostly higher open. Europe seeing solid gains with Italy outperforming. The Italian government today backtracking on a proposed windfall tax on bank profits. Chinese stocks finished the session mixed. New numbers show Chinese consumer prices falling for the first time in two years and producer prices in negative territory as well last month. Well, the new Chinese numbers are sure to raise questions over the effectiveness of Beijing's stimulus measures so far, especially after Tuesday's dismal trade data. Well, Mark Stewart is joining me now for more on this. And uh, Mark, we understand that China are reporting now to be in de-inflation uh, mode. I mean, normal, normally lower prices would be a good thing, but not so much in this case. <laughs> Indeed, Christina, good to see you. And yeah, you are completely right. These lower prices are problematic because it is yet another reflection that Chinese consumers are hesitant to spend money. So we saw prices drop across the board. We saw declines in transportation, household goods. But what really caught my attention were food prices, in particular pork. Pork is the key commodity in China. Its price went down by 26%. This is a commodity that is a big moneymaker for China. Uh, at times, it has been the top pork producer in the world. To see this kind of decline is an indication that consumers are very wary, and these are efforts to try to drive up demand. It's not just pork, though. It's also vegetables. And when we talk about food, these are necessities. Uh, vegetable prices, I think, were down by about 1.5%. When we see these kind of declines, especially on food, the necessities, the basics, it is an indication that people are really cautious and really concerned. As you mentioned, we saw a decline in exports yesterday. But if we look at the past year, especially over these last few months, we have seen very little slow growth, if you will, in China. These consumer prices, these declines uh, are yet another reflection of, of this broader issue, Christina. And another really big warning sign today on the Chinese economy are these reports that China's largest property developer, uh, Country Garden, is at risk at defaulting, Mark. I mean, this is setting off fears that we could be seeing another China Evergrande here. Uh, what more are you hearing on that? Right. It uh, is late on some payments. There is a 30-day grace period, as has been reported. But it is yet another example of this trepidation facing Chinese consumers, especially in the housing market and the property market, which had been really booming for, for quite some time. But because of COVID lockdowns, because of unemployment, especially youth unemployment, there is hesitancy to make an investment in something as big as a home. Uh, we saw the past issues with Evergrande, and this is certainly 
for good reason, raising concern. We have reached out to uh, Country Garden, no response. Uh, but to see, to, see, to see a lack of money moving, the economic term our viewers will know is liquidity. The fact that there is a slowdown here in such an industry that has been so instrumental in China's economic success, that too, along with the consumer price index, is all very telling, Christina. It really is. Uh, we will, of course, continue to watch these closely to see uh, whether or not it can rebound, whether this deflation continues. Uh, Mark Stewart there live for us. Appreciate you being up. Thank you. Now, in Ukraine, the military are claiming partial success on the southern front as President Zelensky, Zelensky acknowledges that the counteroffensive has been difficult. This after Western officials told CNN they're receiving sobering assessments about Ukraine's progress. Our Nick Payton Walsh joins us now live from uh, Ukraine. And Nick, we know there has been huge pressure on this counteroffensive to succeed, not just for the fate of Ukraine, but of course for the continued political and military support that they've been receiving from Western allies. So what does this admission from President Zelensky signify? I think it's really a reflection of the reality. This is a long-anticipated counter-offensive, yes, absolutely. But that anticipation has, I think, delivered perhaps unrealistic expectations. And while much of Ukraine is still under the threat of Russian bombardment, those are sirens you're hearing behind me. As that push south continues to escalate, there are increasing tolls being brought on the civilian population. Now, Zelensky's comments we've been hearing are essentially a reflection of what we know is going on, that they are meeting a well-equipped, dug-in, uh, wait, expectant enemy sat there, often some of the better Russian paratroopers with minefields and concrete fortifications um, all around them. That has slowed the pace of advance and I think there was some expectation that perhaps there would be a repeat of the overnight collapse in Kharkiv that we saw last year, the Russian pullout uh, after pressure in Kherson. That is simply not occurring. It doesn't necessarily mean that the current gridlock and kilometre by kilometre pushes that we're seeing are going to be it forever and they won't see greater ground taken. There are suggestions that Verbovie, uh, near where I'm standing, that may be under pressure too. Ground is falling but the Russians are a better enemy than they expect and we've obtained some good footage, some fascinating footage of exactly what it's like for Ukrainians who go to those freshly captured positions and have the gruesome task of retrieving the dead of Ukraine but also of Russia too. Even saving the dead can be lethal work. It is dawn in freshly overrun Russian positions on the southern front, where the assault is on trench networks spread out in the open. This is rare footage, letting us see the point of view of a Ukrainian soldier and body collector, Vyacheslav. His unit tasked with bringing back the fallen, their own, but also Russian dead too. This Ukrainian body seeming to have almost melted into the ground, the heat speeding up decay, another factor in this grim, gruelling work, where they are often guided to their targets by the smell, from which the masks aren't protection enough. Russian drones see them and they watch them back. 
anti-drone rifles a modern twist in trench warfare from the last century. It is exhausting work. While troops here focus on survival and taking cover, Vyacheslav and his team must carry these heavy but vital burdens all the way back to the road, where they can then bring closure to the grieving, the chance of burial and a goodbye. A week earlier, in another part of the trenches where the fight has clearly been ferocious, they pass Western-supplied armour that has been torn apart. Ukrainian remains found, but the shelling is constant. The search, however, in these captured Russian positions is cautious, probing each spot for mines. For the men holding the position day and night, the body collectors a welcome relief, taking away the reminders of how close death is. The Russians still looking for targets here, among the men rescuing Russian corpses. It is the work nobody ever wanted to do, out exposed in the open, as Ukraine prays for a breakthrough. <laughs> now we finally see Vyacheslav's face in the moment when they know they've survived another day. Relief they feel here, nothing compared to the families who may feel some less agony and closure. From the cargo, they return home. As an important piece of context, Christina, when you hear Western officials talking about how they consider Ukraine's progress to be slower than they would like, the Ukrainian army is being given equipment, yes, by NATO, some of it top end, some of it not really that good, but they are essentially being asked to wait for the F-16s they need to do this operation without air superiority. And so on those frontline trenches, repeatedly, Russian aircraft are striking, sometimes with half-ton bombs, causing extraordinary destruction, casualties, and slowing Ukraine's advance. I don't think any NATO military would undertake what Ukraine's doing now in its counter-offensive without air superiority, yet still they are doing it, and it is uh, an important battle, frankly, for European security at this point. So when you hear those sobering assessments, it's important to understand the cards that Ukraine have been dealt with. Christina? Yeah, and the ones that they are continuing to play. Uh, Nick Payton-Walsh, really great to have you reporting there live from Zaporizhia. Thanks, Nick. And meanwhile, uh, in Russia, a massive explosion has taken place at an industrial plant and it's injured at least 45 people near Moscow. Uh, for the latest on this, Nick Robertson is joining us. Uh, Nick, uh, what can you tell us about the significance of this plant? And is there any indication yet that this uh, we can attribute this to any sort of drone-related incident, as we've been seeing so much of in the past weeks? 
Yeah, the Russians have been very, very quick to launch an investigation into what appears to be the biggest unexplained explosion close to Moscow since the war began. And it's notable that it comes on a day the night into which uh, the Ukrainians uh, sent two drones, it appears, towards one of Moscow's main international airports, Domodedovo, and the Russians say that they shot them down successfully. No injuries or anything reported from that airport. Um, this comes at a time when, as Nick was saying there, it's tough for the Ukrainians to crack the front lines, but they're also putting a lot of energies with drones into cracking Putin's facade that the war is going well, that everything is okay by again and again trying to hit different targets, uh, buildings inside Moscow, uh, the airport outside Moscow overnight. So back to this unexplained explosion that the Russians are investigating. They're saying um, variously uh, on their state media that it was an explosion in a boiler room at the plant, that it was at a pyrotechnics factory, um, this, you know, a fireworks type of factory. The explosion that we're looking at here, and we've seen a lot of other images, video from around the site, including a ring camera video where a woman half a mile or so from the blast is literally about shaken off her feet. So a massive but singular blast, not indicative of a pyrotechnics factory where you would expect there to be multiple secondary explosions and bursts and, and flashes that we've seen before when these types of places have exploded. So, so far, it seems the Russian explanation is trying to damp out the idea that this could be a drone strike or could be some subversive act action at this plant. And it's interesting, I think, to note, although the Russians are saying that this was a pyrotechnics factory, that until this morning, everyone understood what happened at that site, that it was a military site producing electronic optical equipment. This is the sort of equipment that would be vital in a war, be it for drones or night vision goggles or thermal imaging, these sorts of things and thus would make it a very, very high-value target for the Ukrainians to want to hit either by subversive action on the ground um, or by a drone strike, which the Russians categorically say so far it's not. All right. Nick Robertson there breaking it down for us. Thanks very much, Nick. Now, a tragic morning in eastern France. Nine victims have been found after a fire broke out at a vacation home early on Wednesday. The blaze happened in the town of Winsenheim near the border with Germany. A group of people with disabilities were staying at the house during the summer holidays. 17 people were rescued and two people are still missing and are presumed to have died. Uh, Jim Bitterman is joining me uh, with this Jim, truly devastating event. Uh, what more do we know about uh, th those missing people or indeed how this fire even started? Well, Christina, about the cause of the fire, we don't know a lot because I think the investigators are still at the scene trying to figure out what the cause might be. There were about 28 disabled people in uh, this facility this morning at 6.30 when the fire broke out. And it took uh, the firemen. It's a very rural area. It's a town of about uh, 8,000 or so people. And it took uh, the fire department about uh, 15 minutes to get there. And by the time they got there, uh, 17 of the 28 were already uh, outside the building. 11 were unaccounted for. And of those unaccounted for, the fire officials say they believe all have died now. They've recovered nine of the 11 bodies. 
So uh, it is indeed a, a real tragedy. They've set up a crisis center uh, for the families to uh, go to. Uh, these are some of the families are not right there. These are are handicapped people who were in other kind of associated living uh, in other places and had gone to this facility for a couple of weeks of vacation. Uh, and the prime minister took it to so much to heart that she is there now. Uh, visiting with local officials and then going to be at the scene uh, in just the next few minutes. The president of France sent his condolences. Uh, it's really a, a kind of a tragedy for the entire country this morning, Christina. Yeah, I was going to say, not just the families, but the whole country, I'm sure, are feeling this uh, really tragic event. Uh, Jim Bitterman, thank you. And to another tragedy now in the Mediterranean, more than 40 people believed to have died in a migrant shipwreck off the coast of Italy, according to the Red Cross. This comes less than two months after hundreds of migrants were killed when their boat capsized near Greece. Ben Wiedemann is across this for us. And as we know, uh, Ben, uh, these sort of tragic events in the Mediterranean are happening now all too often. Do we know what caused this vessel to capsize? Yeah, Christina, they, these tragedies are happening on an alarming frequency. Uh, we understand that what happened was that this boat uh, left the Tunisian port of Sfax sometime late last uh, week. And just a few hours after leaving the port, uh, it was hit by a very large wave. And uh, since then, uh, the survivors, four as far as we know, uh, they were wearing, they were some of the few who were wearing life jackets. Uh, they were able to find a capsized boat, another boat, and were there for quite some time until a merchant vessel arrived uh, and picked them up, later transferring them to the Italian Coast Guard, which took them to the island of Lampedusa. Now, these four people have been interviewed by the Red Cross, who tell CNN, and uh, that according to them, there were originally 45 people on board when it left the port of Sfax, among them a three-year-old child and a pregnant woman. Now, uh, there's, we understand that they're still looking for survivors or bodies uh, from this incident, but no reports yet of uh, any being found. And now, this year, what we've seen is a dramatic increase in the number of people, according to the Italian authorities, reaching Italian shores. So far, as of today, this year, almost 94,000 migrants and refugees have reached Italian shores. That is twice the number that arrived last year as of the 9th of August, and three times the number that arrived the year before. Now, they're coming from far away, sometimes as far away as Bangladesh. They're fleeing poverty, war, corruption, and hopelessness. Now, the Italian authorities have been in touch with the Tunisians to try to stop the flow of migrants, but very little is being done to stop the original causes for all of these people leaving their homes from so far away, and that is very little is being done to address war, corruption, hopelessness, and the like. Christina? Yeah, as is said so often, Ben, you wouldn't get in the boat if the situation weren't worse at home, uh, but this is pretty tragic and devastating nonetheless. Ben Wiedemann, thank you. 
Now, a mushroom mystery in Australia. Three people have died and another is in critical condition after suspected poisoning from mushrooms served at a family meal. Police say the woman who hosted the lunch is now considered a suspect in a potential homicide. Anna Corrin has the details. Police in Victoria, Australia, are investigating the poisoning deaths of three elderly people after they were served a meal believed to contain extremely poisonous death cap mushrooms. Police are trying to determine if the deaths were homicide. At the end of last month, two elderly couples went for lunch at the home of 48-year-old Erin Patterson in the small township of Leongatha. She is the former daughter-in-law of one of the couples. Police say she is separated from her husband, who has now lost both his parents from the poisoning. Police say that evening, the guests began showing signs of food poisoning and were admitted to hospital. Days later, 70-year-old Gail Patterson and her sister, 66-year-old Heather Wilkinson, died. A day later, Gail's 70-year-old husband passed away. The fourth guest, Heather's 68-year-old husband, a reverend in the local community, remains in a critical condition. Police say that Erin Patterson is a suspect because she cooked the meal and is the only adult at lunch who didn't fall ill. She has not been charged in the deaths. Her two children were also at lunch but did not get sick because they were served different meals. Let's take a listen to what Victoria Police Homicide Detective Inspector Dean Thomas had to say. We have to keep an open mind in relation to this. Um, that it could be very innocent, but again, we just don't know. Uh, but it's uh, really interesting, you know, the four people turn up and uh, three of them have passed away and um, with another one critical. So we just need to work through this. In addressing local media outside her home on Monday, a tearful Patterson denied any wrongdoing, saying she was devastated and that she loved them. While the cause of death has yet to be confirmed, police say the symptoms suffered are consistent with poisoning by death cap mushrooms. Toxins in death cap mushroom found in the wild cannot be destroyed by boiling, cooking, freezing or drying. Eating a small portion can lead to death. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. A quite frightening prospect. All right, stay with CNN. We'll be back after this short break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. 
There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Booking Holdings, a leader in the travel market, is riding high off the back of a blowout second quarter earnings and despite booming demand, says there's still some way to go in the post-pandemic recovery. Booking's primary consumer brands are Booking.com, Priceline, Agoda, Rental, uh, rental car, Rentalcars.com, Kayak and Open Table. Well, in Q2, revenues rose to $5.5 billion. That's up 27% compared to the same time a year ago. And in the same period, travel bookings rose to 15% from 15% to nearly $40 billion. Well, Glenn Fogel is CEO and president of Bookings Holdings. Joining me here live. Great to have you with us. Uh, These are impressive numbers, uh, Glenn, an indication that travel is rebounding post-COVID. But not all of your competitors have been able to match some of the gains that you've been able to. So how have you done it? Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having us. And we are very thrilled with how the second quarter played out for us. It really was an impressive quarter. And certainly some area of the world is doing better than other areas. So some of our competitors are focused in some parts of the world that are not recovering as quickly. But I think a lot of it's just been some really hard work by our team. You know, we have people working every day to make sure that travel is good for both the traveling consumer and also our partners, the hotels, the flights, et cetera. And I'm just thrilled with things are coming back. Three years of pandemic, it was a hard time for everybody, but we're glad we're coming out. Yeah, three years of the pandemic, but now perhaps we face uh, another major challenge, which is climate change. Uh, As you may know, we've just had the hottest July in history. Um, You know, we've been reporting on images in recent weeks of tourists fainting at the Trevi Fountain in Italy, the Acropolis having to be shut down in Athens because of the extreme heat. I'm just wondering how that aspect is beginning to influence the travel habits that you're seeing and how you're preparing for that eventuality. Yes, and it really is uh, unfortunate. The tragedies that we've seen in some parts of the world right now, fires, floods, other things, weather problems that have really caused a lot of disruption. Travel is certainly always going to be impacted by these kinds of changes. You know, we haven't seen a lot of change the way people are booking yet. People, you know, they prepared for their summer holidays. And of course, it's very hot in the Northern Hemisphere during the summers, particularly in Europe. Um, What I did see recently was a report by the EU government came out projecting long term that travel habits may change. People may say, I'm not sure I'm going to go to Greece in the middle of the summer. Maybe I'll come when it's a cooler time to visit there. And maybe in the summer, I'll go to a part of the world that it's not as warm. And in fact, one of the one of the areas they noted was Wales is potentially getting an increase in travel in the long run. And I could see that happening, but we're not seeing it yet. Wales. Well, as someone who's went to university in Wales, I would very much welcome that. (laughs) But whether it's a holiday from Italy or not, I don't know. Um, Listen, how important has sustainability become, not for just you as a travel company, but for the traveller now who's aware of climate change, who wants to take a more conscientious view on the way they travel and the way they do holidays? No, we always want to make sure that we're doing our part at Booking.com. And one of the things that we put out is a thing we call our travel sustainability program. And what that does is it enables properties like hotels or homes that are on platform to do things that are more sustainable. And if they do that, we then give them a notification, a, a leaf, a green leaf. So when somebody is searching for a hotel or a home to stay in, and if they see a one leaf or two leaves or three leaves, they know that that's a place you can stay that's sustainable, trying to improve the easy 
easiness with which people can find where are places that are sustainable. We know people want to go and travel sustainably, but we also know it's sometimes hard to know, well, what does that mean? How will I know? We also have, for example, a kayak. We have a carbon uh, a carbon uh, dioxide counter, a CO2 counter, so people know when you're flying how much in terms of emissions is that flight going to do? And they can choose a flight that has less emissions. It's doing our part to be helpful, but obviously this is a global problem and it's gonna require a lot of effort by a lot of industries and very importantly, governments. Yeah, and that aspect plays into this new AI uh, trip planner that you launched, I think in June. How much are travelers engaging with that AI technology right now? And how big a part of your business is that gonna be moving forward? So we just rolled it out and we've had different types of uh, generative AI products that we've rolled out. So for booking.com, we rolled out a thing called Trip Planner that's at the top of the search funnel when people are just beginning to discover and explore where they want to travel. At the same time, our Priceline company put out with the generative AI product they call Penny, and that's at the end of the funnel, as we call it, when people are ready to check out, but they may have some questions. And using a chatbot, they can ask questions about a particular property that's much easier than going back and trying to find it. Both of them right now, very early, very small. But I think generative AI is just going to be an enormous change in the way we do everything in life. Travel especially is going to be one of them. Yeah, and there's a lot of skepticism around AI right now, but I can totally see, and I think I actually already used your uh, AI technology just in the last month, so I can see how that's certainly going to work in the travel industry. Uh, Glenn Fogel, CEO and President of Bookings Holdings, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, the WeWork business model may be unworkable and the once mighty office space firm says its future is in doubt. A victim of the changing post-pandemic world? That story just ahead. Welcome back to First Move and a bit of a wary Wednesday on Wall Street. The major U.S. averages are trying to bounce back after an across-the-board fall in the previous sessions. But flat trading so far, as you can see, the stock action this week and for August so far has been choppy. The S&P is down almost 2% since the start of the month. Investors braiding for important U.S. consumer inflation data on Thursday. And Disney's earnings are out after Wednesday's closing bell. Well, in other news, WeWork says its business model doesn't work. The company is warning that it has, quote, substantial doubt over its abilities to stay in business. The firm's shares already badly beaten down are tumbling in early trading on Wall Street. Uh, Claire Duffy is joining me uh, now for more. And, and Claire, it wasn't that long ago we were calling WeWork, you know, the workplace of the future. It was valued at, I think, $47 billion. So what's, what's gone wrong here? That's exactly right, Christina. This is a company that, as you said, at its peak was valued at $47 billion. Now substantial doubt exists about its ability to stay in business over the next year. The company cited its losses. It reported a net loss of $397 million in just the second quarter alone, as well as its projected cash needs going forward and member turnover. This is not exactly a surprise. This is a company that's never really recovered from its failed IPO attempt in 2019. The company did go public in 2021 at a valuation of just $9 billion, which since, as you see, they're fallen even further. 
And this is an industry that really took a beating from the pandemic. There is now a glut of open commercial real estate space. There's increased competition in this sort of co-working industry. And lots of companies are fighting with their workers over not wanting to go back to the office, you know, full time or even at all. And so this company, WeWork, now has a plan to try to turn things around. It plans to renegotiate leases to try to lower rent costs. It plans to try to reduce some of that member churn that it talked about and potentially to fundraise by issuing equity securities or debt. But I think as especially as you look at that 15 cents trading price, this company has a long way to go if it wants to turn things around. Yeah, well, we know it has turned things around in the past. Whether or not it can do that this time, though, remains to be seen. Uh, Claire Duffy, thank you. And it's merged a popular weight loss drug may also cut the risk of heart attack, stroke or health related death by as much as 20 percent. That's according to a new study from the company that makes the drug called Wegovy. Wegovy? Wegovy. The demand for the drug is uh, skyrocketing. And now we're also learning more about the potential side effects and alternative uses. Our medical correspondent Meg Tyrrell is joining us live here. And Meg, I feel like, you know, another week doesn't go by where we don't hear these uh, incredible claims from, you know, yet another weight loss uh, company. Can you break down the potential health benefits of this drug in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we hear a lot about this because this actually is kind of a revolutionary time when it comes to these new medicines. This new class of drugs is known as GLP-1s, and there are actually several medicines in it, including Wigovi, but also uh, Ozempic, which is probably the most famous, and Mounjaro. And Ozempic and Mounjaro are actually approved for type 2 diabetes, but are sometimes used off-label for weight loss. Wigovi is actually approved for weight loss itself. And in trials, they've shown between 5 and 22 percent weight loss. That 22 percent there for Mounjaro is in its obesity trial. It's awaiting that FDA indication now. And just this week, we are seeing that sort of landmark new trial in terms of the heart benefits of these medicines, with Govi showing a benefit of a 20% risk reduction for a second heart attack or stroke uh, or heart-related death uh, in this trial uh, with people who don't have diabetes. That's the first time we've seen this with a weight loss medicine, and doctors are saying this could really potentially open up the field, particularly in terms of uh, insurance reimbursement here in the U.S., which is not great yet for these medicines. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is good news. But there has also been a lot of talk about the potential side effects of these drugs. What can you tell us about that? Well, the most common side effects are really tolerability issues, particularly as people are just starting the medicines. There are things like nausea and vomiting, uh, things like that. Doctors say this is intolerable for about 5 to 10 percent of patients, but typically it goes away after you've been on the drug for a little while. There are things that are more serious that are included in the drug's label. A sort of theoretical risk of thyroid cancer, for example, that's been seen in rodents, not yet in people, but it's something uh, doctors say should be watched out for. Kidney problems are another thing uh, that are in the warning label. But there are other things that are starting to sort of emerge as questions, uh, something called gastroparesis, which is stomach paralysis. We know these drugs work in part by slowing the emptying of food from the stomach, but there are questions about whether that can get too severe in certain cases, and CNN has done a lot of reporting on this. There are also probes going on in the EU and UK into the potential risk of suicidal thoughts on these medicines. No proven link, but as more and more people take these, uh, they are deserving of more study, experts say. Yeah, pretty concerning on the face of it. But as you say, uh, good that they those studies are ongoing. Uh, Meg Tyrrell with the latest there on that. Thank you. Now, and after the break, no cash, no problem. We'll discuss Visa's digital payment partnership for, with FIFA for the Women's World Cup when we return. 
I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Now, it's one of the most recognized brands in the world and a longtime supporter of women's football. Visa is an official partner for the Women's World Cup being held right now. And FIFA says the whole event is its first ever cashless tournament. Throughout the competition, Visa is offering a digital prepaid card that can be used in and outside the stadium. Fans can also redeem a limited number of match day NFTs. Australia and New Zealand, which are hosting the World Cup, are among the most advanced in the world when it comes to digital payments. Uh, joining me now is Frank Cooper. He is the Chief Marketing Officer at Visa. Frank, good to see you. Um, so as I was saying, though, this has been the first ever cashless FIFA World Cup, and we know fans have been engaging with the perks that come with that, like the unique NFTs and the discounts. We're midway through the tournament, or just a little over midway through the tournament here. What have you learned from this experience so far? And any plans to roll this out, for instance, at the Olympics in Paris next year? Yeah, Christine, uh, great to be here with you. Yeah, look, th- what we've learned so far is that this has been kind of a steady march with consumers and fans toward cashless transactions. And and Australia and New Zealand, as you, you, you just mentioned, they're kind of off the charts in terms of digital payments. You, know, you have 99% of Australians and 96% of New Zealanders who already um, like cashless transactions when they're face-to-face. So that number is already baked in. You know, six of the Australian stadiums are already cashless. So that was kind of already happening. What it's taught us, though, is what is the fan experience when you have this cashless experience? And you're seeing shorter queues. You're seeing, you're seeing consumers who feel like there's less friction in the payment process. They have the, the feeling of more security. And, um, and the merchants are also benefiting from this. When you have less friction, you get more transactions. And so we're seeing this as being an enhancement of the fan experience and an opportunity for merchants to generate more revenue. But as you're saying, I mean, that was already kind of baked into the uh, the approach that Australia and New Zealand are already taking. For somewhere like Paris, for instance, for the Olympics next year, would you expect the same uh, ease if you were going to opt for that again? Yeah, I, I, I think if you look across most regions of the world, in most stadiums, um, there's a steady progression towards cashless transactions. And so we, we expect to expand this in the Paris 2024 Olympics and Paralympics. Um, we, it is simply more convenient uh, for uh, fans. But more important than that, we think we can deliver a personalized experience to fans by understanding what their preferences are. And so you'll see us expand this in the Paris Olympics. You'll see us expand it in the, the, uh, the FIFA uh, Men's World Cup in, in, in 2026. You'll see um, us expand it in the NFL this fall, this fall in, the, in the United States. It's already happening in the stadiums. Um, but for us, it's a great opportunity because this is what we do. You know, we, we invested over $10 billion in security and transactions, and we have historic lows in fraud. And so we think that we can not only provide security for fans and merchants, but also deliver a better experience. And so you definitely see it in Paris um, 
it's uncertain yeah. whether it'll be ashes completely, but it certainly will be uh, uh, much more prominent than you've seen in the past Olympics. One of your other innovations that I really liked during this World Cup is linking the Visa Player of the Match trophy to a grants uh, grants awarded to women-only small businesses from players of that country's origin. Um, this isn't just an overnight idea. This is backed up by research showing that partnering with women's sport is actually good for business. Can you just talk us through your findings in that regard? Yeah, Christina, it's one of the things I love the most, too. Uh, you know, I think, first of all, we're seeing a, a renaissance in sports, and that is the recognition of the quality of play and the talent in, in women's sports generally. Um, but, but we've been in, Visa's been in uh, women's sports for over 20 years. You know, we were the first FIFA global partner. Uh, we're the first standalone uh, partner under uh, UEFA. And we believe in women's sports largely for what you just said. If you look at the C-suite, 94% of women in the C-suite say that sports played a critical role in their success. You know, we have over 80% of uh, women, who small business owners, who say that sports is critical to their success. You know, that, that old Ted Lasso phrase that we've, we've heard over, over the past several years, you know, football's life is true. You know, um, there is a correlation that we see between sports and success outside of sports. And so we want to be incredibly supportive of that. So we, we decided to, to take a different view on the player of the match award this year. And, and we give that award out 64 times and it's fantastic. Um, but we're now attaching it to a grant to a, a women small business owner in the home country of the player of the match winner. And, um, and that's been a remarkable thing for us, uh, but also for the women business owners receiving it. Um, we want to make that connection between sports and business, and we want to expand that connection. So it's one of the things I'm really excited about and proud of. And that is a connection, I think, that people are sadly only waking up to, that women's sport is good for business. This World Cup is drawing revenues we haven't seen before, viewing figures we haven't seen for before. Visa, Visa have obviously been there in this space already for the last five World Cups. So uh, you're ahead of the game as things stand. Uh, really great to have your perspective on this. And of course, we look forward to the rest of the World Cup. What a corker it's been so far. Frank Cooper, thank you. Thank you so much, Christina. All right, still to come, we'll first move. Who runs the world? Girls, or at least Taylor Swift, Beyonce and Barbie. We'll discuss how these superstars are giving the US economy a fierce boost. This just in to CNN. An American nurse and her daughter who were kidnapped in Haiti have been released. The Christian humanitarian group that she works for announced their safe release just moments ago. Uh, Alex Dawsonville and her daughter went missing two weeks ago. They were kidnapped from the community ministry of Port-au-Prince where she was working. Now, Swifties in Los Angeles are getting ready to flock to Sophie Stadium Wednesday night for Taylor Swift's final performance of her era's tour until October. The Shake It Off singer's six-night California residency has brought in major money for local businesses. A new report from the California Center for Jobs and the Economy estimates that the tour will bring $320 million to the city. But Swift isn't the only female superstar to be giving a big boost to the U.S. economy. Vanessa Yosevich uh, joins me now with more. And Vanessa, I've been calling this summer the holy trinity of SBB, uh, <laughs> Swift, Beyonce and Barbie, of course. Tell us more. 
Yeah, we cannot forget about Beyonce and Barbie. The three women, obviously two real, one not, but all three of them fueling the economy and really fueling spending by women, millions of women, and not just from one age group, across generations. We are seeing women open up their wallets, many for the first time, to get in on the summer of girl power. We're waiting to see if we get the tickets. It would have been a cruel summer if not for this moment. We're going to Taylor Swift. This group of moms, sisters, sisters-in-laws, and cousins are Swifties. How many of you ladies in the room have been to the Taylor Swift concert? (laughs) We also have Barbie fans. I loved going with my family. I don't think I would have rather had it any other way. Women and girls of all ages are flocking to Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and Barbie. These women are resonating with other women in Mm -hmm. a big, big way. What are you seeing in this moment that may be different than other moments with these three women? Women are not to be underestimated. They lift up economies and that impact is not to be overlooked. But brands haven't been talking to them in their language for a really long time. That language is authenticity and empowerment. Generations of women are sharing these experiences together. The result, one billion in box office sales for Barbie, Beyonce's economy driving tour, and extra U.S. dates added later this year for Swift's Eras tour to meet demand. It was a gift to me to watch them experience her, right? It it was amazing. I remember when Taylor came out, I was videoing their reaction. And that is something that will live with me forever. And that feeling, bottled up, is priceless. It's unleashed the spending power of women, which has always existed, but is now being harnessed through other fearless women. It was nice to be a part of things that had such a girl-positive message, which is definitely not the norm. So hopefully, maybe this sparks the turn, and maybe we get to see some more of that. Two canceled flights was not going to stop Helen Polisi from meeting her daughter, Julie, in Los Angeles. I made it! Woo! (laughs) For the final leg of Taylor Swift's tour in L.A. Come hell or high water, I was going today. (laughs) So I made it happen. A last-minute first-class ticket later, two concert tickets, dinners out, the outfits and the beads, it all adds up. Men go to a lot of sporting games and spend a lot of money on sporting tickets, and that's never, like, considered absurd or or over the top. Like, why? Like, for us, this is like my Super Bowl. The duo also has plans to see Barbie together during their self-described Girl Power Weekend. This summer has really been a celebration of, like, women coming together and, like, really embracing female friendships and doing things together. It's like the first time women my age, women my mom's age, even, like, little girls are seeing like femininity and femaleness portrayed in such like a positive light where you just feel so happy. And many of the women and girls in our piece there are going to be repeat customers. The young girls in that family of 10 say that they want to get the moms who haven't seen Barbie yet to go to the movie. And all of those ladies, the 10 of them, want to go to Taylor Swift again in another city when she comes back to the U.S. to finish up her tour here. But, you know, Christina, we can't leave out the men and the young boys who are going to these shows and are going to see Barbie. They end up sometimes going to support 
the women and girls, but end up loving these experiences just as much. And Christine, the, the message also from these two shows and the movie ends up resonating with the men too. So it's really amazing to see what this summer has done in terms of people willing to spend money and really revel in joy in these experiences. It's definitely turning out to be the summer of girl power or the trifecta, as you call it, Christina. <laughs> the Super Bowl, as that Swifty fan uh, called it. And I can uh, tell you that my husband is one of those who has been converted to Barbie, Vanessa. So you're right in that regard. Vanessa Jogovic, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, stay tuned. Connect the World is coming up after the quick break. Thank you. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.